and welcome to the Why We Argue podcast. I'm Robert Talese, your host. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Why We Argue is produced by Humility and Conviction in Public Life, which is a project based at the University of Connecticut. It explores how to balance our deepest commitments with open-mindedness, a respect for reason, and intellectual humility. The series is made possible by generous funding from the John Templeton Foundation, and it features brief discussions with publicly-minded thinkers about the state of civil discourse in contemporary democracy. Today, my guest is Michelle Margolis. Michelle is Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Pennsylvania. She just recently published a book, which is titled From Politics to the Pews, How Partisanship and the Political Environment Shape Religious Identity. As the title suggests, the book examines the contemporary interplay of religious and political identity in the United States. Hello, Michelle. Hi, Bob. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Uh, and it's great to be here uh, talking to you. Um, so let's get to it. I suppose that uh, many listeners um, will know that citizens in the United States who strongly identify with a religious community also uh, tend to affiliate with the Republican Party, while alternatively citizens without religious conviction or who identify only weakly with a religious community uh, also tend to vote Democrat. Now, your book challenges a popular account of this phenomenon. And I guess just to spell it out quickly, I take it that the popular account has it that certain kinds of cultural and maybe demographic changes in the United States uh, in recent decades have in various ways exercised or maybe antagonized the religious identities of large numbers of citizens. The culture has become more permissive of certain things that certain religious modes of conviction find troubling morally. And that antagonism or those cultural changes that have caused antagonism uh, have led uh, religious communities to become more politically active. And that has signaled to political bodies, including major parties, that they have to align themselves with the prevailing sort of religious uh, divide emerging among the citizenry. Your book and your work, more generally, sort of challenges that idea and suggests that it might, well, it's definitely more, more complicated than that simple account. And maybe that, uh, in some cases, the, the causal or explanatory uh, direction uh, goes in the other way. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so I think what's important to note is it's not that I don't think that religion affects politics. I do. I think it can be a very important factor in making political decisions. But both in journalistic accounts, as well as is the academic literature, as well as just our conventional wisdom, when we think about the relationship between religion and politics, we almost exclusively think of it in this unidirectional framework, which is your religion leads to your politics. And so the purpose of the book is to open up that question and think about the chicken and egg question a little bit that, okay, is it always the case that religion affects politics? Or is it possible that sometimes your political outlook can actually inform religious decisions? And so as a starting point, I take what we sometimes is called the God gap or the religiosity gap, which is this idea that more religious Americans, regardless of your denomination, regardless of whether you're a mainline Protestant, an evangelical Protestant, a Catholic, if you are religious, if you go to church on a weekly basis, or if religion is an important part of your life, you are much more likely to be a Republican than if you are either not religious at all or a less religious counterpart within those faith or 
faith traditions. Mm-hmm. And that's different than what had been 50, 60 years ago, where the gap, there were religious gaps in American politics, but it was based along these religious tradition, right? Democrat, uh, Catholics were historically very democratic. Um, Northern Protestants were more Republican. Southern Protestants were were Democrat. And that we're seeing this shift, though. There would never be you talk you you know you mentioned in the in the question or in the lead up about kind of these changes in the political environment and the idea that now we have a world in which religious evangelicals and Catholics have banded together and at an elite level are working together to mobilize voters along these kind of cultural, whether it's same-sex marriage, whether it's abortion, whether it's something religious liberty, that they're working together, that never would have, people wouldn't have been able to fathom that 75 years ago, right? There was a, there was a great deal of antagonism between Catholics and Protestants. And now the fact that the linkage is no longer, the political linkage is no longer whether you're an evangelical or whether you're Catholic, it's whether you're religious or whether you're secular, that's the starting point that I try to explain in the book, that your level of religiosity, whether you choose to be part of a religious community, can in fact be driven by your politics. And the, the explanation that I have for it is actually based on, on two sets of pretty well-formed literatures. The first is the religious socialization literature, which basically says it comes out of the so- field of sociology, which just says when you're children, you don't have much agency in your religious upbringing. Your parents make decisions for you. It's very natural that people become less religious in adolescence and young adulthood. It's just a peripheral concern. There's a lot of reasons why people become less religious at this time period, but it's something that scholars have routinely found. And this is actually something in my own research, having talked to religious leaders, there's a lot of outreach that tries to keep teenagers in the church. And that's why there's a lot of religious organizations on college campuses trying to keep people from sort of falling away at this time. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that you become an apostate forever. A lot of people make decisions about their religious involvement once they get married and have kids. Now, all of a sudden, you as an adult have to decide do I want to go to, do I want my child to go to Sunday school? Do I want my child to be baptized? You have to make these decisions for your child. And in the process, you end up having to seek out a church. What kind of church do you want to be a part of? How religious do you want to be in the process of making a decision for your family? And that decision might be, I don't want to go back to church or I want to go back exactly how I was raised, but there's a whole, you can kind of fall anywhere in that spectrum. Right. Interesting. But conversely, the political a key finding out of political science is that people develop their partisan identities pretty early on. So adolescence and young adulthood, right when religion is is sort of on the back burner, people are forming their political identities and then they're actually very largely stable over the course of your life. So there really isn't much in the way of partisan shifts. We You don't see people, many people moving from saying they're a Democrat to saying they're a Republican or vice versa over the course of their adult life. It is shockingly, shockingly stable. Um, and so part of the argument is that there's this juncture at which you're married, you have kids, you need to make religious decisions for yourself and your family, and you're going to be looking for outside influences. And it can be all sorts of influences. It could be where, how, how conveniently located the church is, whether the church offers childcare services, whether your friends go to the church, it can be lots of influences, but you also are going to have a political identity at that point. And no one likes to make decisions that create internal dissonance or cognitive dissonance, that you're not going to want to go to a very conservative church where you're going to have pastors speaking out against Democratic candidates or issues that are seen as traditionally 
partisan, along partisan lines, if you are a pretty liberal Democrat, you're going to avoid that church. You're either going to avoid church altogether, or you're going to find a liberal church that works for you. Conversely, if you're someone who's politically and morally very conservative, then you might seek out a religious community that aligns with that as well. And so at this juncture, we see politics affecting your religious decision. And once you make those decisions, then I find that there's a lot of stability over the course of your adult life. But basically making this decision, I'm not saying that politics is the only thing that goes into it, but it's a time when our religious identities are relatively in flux and and haven't been solidified, but our partisan identities are actually pretty intact. And now that we live in a world in which there's very clear cues that religious people are Republicans and less religious people are Democrats, you as a Democrat or Republican are going to take that as one possible factor when making decisions about how religious you want to be. Excellent. And does this influence, or does this help, let me put it this way, do these phenomena that you've been describing about the formation of our identities and how our choice making is motivated and all the rest, all of which seems, I should add, uh, entirely plausible, uh, does this help explain what one might think is more overt or intensified political identities attaching to particular religious communities? That is, uh, you know, I live in Nashville, Tennessee, <laughs> and I'm I'm not a uh, not a religious person myself, but I know without having looked into the matter, I should add, I'm not exactly sure how I acquired this information, which is interesting. I know roughly what the political leanings are of most of the churches that um, are in my neighborhood. And by the way, there I'm in Nashville. There are a lot of churches in my neighborhood. <laughs> and so it, it, this strikes me as something that might not also might not have been true uh, some you know some decades ago where it wasn't so overt or wasn't so clear or wasn't so uh, um, uh, you know churches or religious congregations didn't, didn't advertise overtly their political leanings. Is this sort of th- th- that now? These partisan identities are formed in a time before when we're making these choices about how we're going to uh, construct our religious identities uh, in adulthood. Is that part of a? Is that part of a? a I don't want to say the word strategy. Is that part of a way in which a church or a congregation would help you uh, make an informed decision? Is by making its politics more easy to discern? Absolutely. I mean, I think. I think, so to your kind of first question, I think all of this is very self-reinforcing, right? So knowing once people start to self-segregate, once they're picking churches or staying out of churches or picking specific churches because of their politics, then the relationships that we see every election cycle, that this God gap or these, you know, the relationship between religion and politics come election time and how people vote, every time that that relationship becomes a bit steeper, a bit starker, there's going to be more newspaper articles written about it. People are going to become more aware of it, including politicians. So then you're going to get into a world in which Democratic and Republican candidates choose to visit different types of churches, right? So Democratic candidates predominantly go to African-American churches. That would be a really good place to get your message out or to speak to potential voters in a way that, for the most part, uh, there's always exceptions, Republican candidates tend to go toward white churches, right, white right. conservative churches. And then and then conversely, as you said, is then on the flip side, then you also have churches. So yeah, I live in Philadelphia, which has 
churches, but living in this downtown part of the city, it's a very democratic area. You definitely see when you walk past a church that has a rainbow flag that says everyone's welcome here and a sign that says Black Lives Matter, that is signaling a lot about what you're going to expect the pastor to talk about. And importantly, what you think the pastor is probably not going to be speaking about on a Sunday. And so all of these things kind of work together. I'm not going to pinpoint and say, it's just that politics, it's just the news cycle talking about the God gap, or it's just the advertisement that the churches do, or it's just the, it's just when, where candidates go that are having this effect, but it's all happening all at the same time, which is making it easier and easier and easier for someone to make a decision you know, once you decide I want to go to church, you can decide whether you want to go to the church that has the Black Lives Matter sign, or if, you know, you have something that says, you know, a life begins a conception sign, and you or can make a decision, matter. or yeah. all lives matter, blue yeah. lives matter, you can yeah, make yeah. that decision about which church works for you. Um, and some people may, you know, and, and in some respects, what I think is amazing about the politicization of it is, of, of churches is, there aren't really most of the banners hanging outside churches nowadays, at least it sounds like in Nashville and, and where, where I'm living are political in one way or another. You don't have giant signs that talk about, you know, childcare during services or huge signs right. talking about the free coffee in the lobby to the extent that there are signs, they often are, they're either signs about where to park or there are signs about <laughs> politics. And, and so that tells you something about the types of cues people are interested in, in receiving when making their decisions. Right. And so is there also, so again, I'm a philosopher. So at, at, at my connection to the data that you work with is, is, is quite mediated. But is there data that suggests that there's a, a greater interest or maybe something as strong as a demand uh, among people that their consumption behaviors, their identities uh, in in various kinds of social and group settings, uh, their political identities, their religious identities, the way they raise their family. Is there, is there a greater demand that these things be unified in certain ways that they might not have been, that, you know, Maybe, you know, some decades back, you know, what church you went to didn't really have such tight, such a tight connection to questions about, you know, how, where you live in town or what your what your views about parenting are, what your consumption habits are. I take it that there's some data that suggests along some other identity dimensions that people seek greater unity among their various kinds of social identities that they want you know, they want to shop at Whole Foods because they're also progressives. <laughs> is there a broader, is, is there more data on that about the religious identity that some way that being a certain, you're attending a certain kind of Christian church is a way of joining uh, one's religious identity with one's political identity in a way that's satisfying? Absolutely. I mean, I think so a core a core piece of literature that underpins, it's actually from psychology, but we political scientists like to co-opt um, theories that, that are convenient for <laughs> politics. And it's this idea of cognitive dissonance that you don't want to hold beliefs that are internally inconsistent, right? Mm. It's, and so the, the, the classic example of this is, is if you're a smoker and you know smoking is really bad for you. And so the different ways you can tell yourself that it's okay that you smoke, that either the the research isn't very good on it or 
you don't smoke that much or whatever it is, you have a narrative in your head about how you can justify doing something that you intellectually know is, is not good for you. And in the same way, that's, that's a weird example, but that's, that's the kind of basic idea of cognitive dissonance that people don't want to go sit in churches and hear things that then they either disagree with, or more importantly, if we're talking about people with parents with kids, you don't want to take your children to an event, in this case, a service, and then on the way home say, so I know the pastor was talking about this, but we actually don't really believe that. Right, or we right. we have a caveat, or we we believe either you know that's too liberal or that's too conservative. So so finding something that that suits your needs is is a a very basic human nature that we are not we are not well equipped to hold conflicting views in our head. And so the idea that someone would go sit through a church that or in a church service where they're just disagreeing at every turn with what's being said either from from the pulpit, but also a lot of what's going on is talking to other folks in the pews and having people make right. offhanded comments or what their their conversations are about. You don't want to be surrounded by people who you just disagree with wholeheartedly. And so if that's the case, you're going to select out of it. And the reason why this is much more an issue today than it was, say, 50 years ago was, right, it wasn't until the 1980s that the parties split on abortion. Not only did they split, but it used to be that the Republican Party was seen as the mo- more pro-choice party, right, right. in the 70s. And, and, and But importantly, both parties had both pro-choice and pro-life positions. And it wasn't until the mid-80s that, that the Republican Party in its platform took a kind of a hard stance that we we are pro-life and the Democrats took a uh, took a stance that we are pro-choice and that they they both removed the language that, you know, there's room for both opinions or things like that. And they just said, this is our position now. Um, and so before you, you, you might've heard people talking about abortion, you might not have in the churches, right? Abortion was also not a politically salient issue before the 50, before the 60s, early 70s, that so if you heard about abortion at all, it wasn't clear which party that aligned with. And so maybe you might have been turned off in the late 70s if you had a pastor speaking about abortion based on your personal views about abortion, but it wasn't tied to your politics per se. And no one was talking, no one was in favor of gay marriage in the 70s. You know, these issues that might have been debated 30, 40 years ago that may or may not have been discussed in churches were not, didn't have the political linkages that they have today. And now the fact that the parties are so separate on these cultural and moral issues makes it very clear, you know, and the fact that now everything is kind of a cultural moral issue. So things associated, as we said, you know, the idea of a black lives matter versus all lives matter. Mm. And that distinction is, you know, very political, but it's become kind of a moral cultural issue that ties, that is very closely connected. If you take an all lives matter versus a black lives matter, I couldn't guarantee it. But if I had to guess what your views were about, say, same sex marriage or abortion and put money on it, I'd probably guess correctly, right? These things are very correlated, even if they're not interchangeable. And so I think the fact that we have this opportunity to, that people now have the opportunity to select in and out of churches in a way that it was just not, you not really something that was done 56 years ago because of the political environment. Now that you have the opportunity to do that, you're going to avoid the dissonance if you can. Right. So let me uh, ask a philosopher's question. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, the 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 motivation to avoid dissonance is one thing that is understandable and no doubt prevalent in all kinds of choices that uh, that we make. 
but is there a corresp- is there a corresponding trend in favor of something that's slightly different, which is the positive desire to have one's political identity affirmed mm. in one's uh, when one is exercising one's religious or inhabiting one's religious community or participating as a congregant? That seems to me different, and I, I just wonder if it's not that we're we're if there's anything to suggest maybe that we're we've grown to be more interested in having our political identities affir- positively affirmed rather than merely not challenged yeah, in other avenues of life. Absolutely. So uh, another another theory that political scientists have co-opted from psychology, or in this case, social psychology, is social identity theory, this idea that we're parts of groups and we derive self-esteem from feeling positively about the group and being a part of a group, being part of the group. And that can... Right manifests itself in lots of different ways. But importantly, a lot of recent research in political science has shown that your partisan identity is an identity. It's not just, I'm a Democrat because I mainly vote for Democrats, but I don't really care about other Democrats. It really has become an identity where you care about what other Democrats think. You want to be sort of accepted by the quote unquote team. You want to differentiate yourself from Republicans who are the out party or the out team. And so the fact that we can think of your partisan identity and being a Democrat or Republican as part of an identity, then doing things to affirm that identity is is absolutely happening. And so I think, and maybe, maybe I spoke too generally by saying it was, or too specifically by saying it was just cognitive dissonance doing the work, because I actually think what makes this so powerful is you, it's happening on, it could be happening on multiple dimensions. You don't want to hear conflicting beliefs. You also want to do something that's going to make you feel good about it. So not only on Sunday, are you going to go to church and find out that Jesus loves you, but you're also going to get this added affirmation about your political identity at the same time. Like that's a really, that's a really great way to spend a Sunday if you're a conservative Republican Christian. Right. You're getting almost a twofer by going to church, by talking to other people who share your views, being part of the Republican team, as well as whatever religious benefits you're getting. So the fact that the two are so closely tied together, you're both you're making decisions both to avoid the dissonance, but you're also having the, the positive externality of being part of this team and having that team mentality, deriving positive self-esteem from hanging out with people and, and socializing with people who believe the same things as you and, you know, give you, you know, the warm fuzzies for lack of a, a, a more scientific term. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so you've been very generous with your time and I, I want to make sure that we're, we're able to get to this feature of, uh, of your work. And let me just sort of ask it as sort of a two-part question. So, um, and one is a very specific part. The other one is a very general query. Um, so I take it that it's also one of the elements of some of the views about social identity that you were mentioning has it that as those identities become more salient, to us, as membership becomes more important to us, as uh, disambiguating or distancing ourselves from non-members also becomes part of our uh, motivational economy. The groups to which we belong and with which we identify also tend to become more internally homogeneous. That is, that the more we start associating as let's say Republicans or as, you know, Christian conservatives, the more we expect and maybe even demand a kind of internal uh, unity among the membership. And if that is true, if that if that's borne out, the question then is, so first question, is that true? Second question is, if it is true, that's that sounds to me, a political philosopher, is very, very bad news for democracy. 
Yeah. So I think, I think sadly the answer is yes, that is true. It's not true across the board in every context and every situation, but it does seem like that is true from new research that I was doing. I actually spent six weeks in Alabama doing interviews and going to churches and interviewing lay people and religious leaders. And the narr- the, the things I've heard about from pastors getting pushback for preaching on something that is seen as liberal or getting upset when they had been praying for the president for 15 years, but as soon as Obama became president, you had numerous members of your congregation threatening to leave because they didn't think you should be having to p- pray for President Obama in church on Sunday, preaching because on, he's a Muslim, <laughs> because he's a Muslim, because he's black, because he's a Democrat. I don't, I don't know why, oh but my. the idea that that this wasn't something that the the pastor had instituted with President Obama mm-hmm. and was fine when it was under a Republican president seems to be fine now under President Trump was not fine in the intervening eight years. Things like that, or or if you, I had a pastor tell me that he gave a speech, uh, he gave a sermon about compassion, which is obviously a very core part of the teachings of the gospel, and having getting pushback from congregants that that was too politically liberal and being too political, and so it definitely seems like not only there's a desire for homogeneity, and that it's actually pastors who are sometimes now being constrained because even in conservative places like Alabama, the pastors are usually more liberal than the congregants, right. and the fact that that they have to contend with this is is evidence that this is definitely happening. And I think it's on numerous levels, holy. So your broader question, it's holy. It's very troubling for democracy, political science. And there's a whole literature on political deliberation that shows how important it is to hear cross messaging and to hear to, to speak with people who hold different political views and to deliberate and how that moderates opinions, how it decreases polarization. There's lots and lots of literature that, that are, that speaks to this exact point. And if we're getting to a place and it used to be that going to church, you would go to a church and you would meet Democrats and you meet Republicans and the pastor may or may not talk about politics. The people in the pews may or may not not talk about politics, but now if you're living in a world where either you're going to certain types of churches or you're either not going to church or you are, if you're only speaking to people who are like you, we're losing this whole churches used to be an area where we could sort of bridge that divide that exists in other parts of our life. And so the fact that that doesn't exist anymore in, in churches is, is highly troubling because the normative implications of not hearing the other side is is huge and you know obviously we get it now with so many types of news you know you're not hearing news that you disagree with and things like that so it's not the only area but churches could be thought of as a way to bridge that divide but unfortunately mm-hmm. that doesn't seem to be the case and then the last the other the other troubling thing i think for democracy the big issue is is a huge part about american democracy is built on accountability and the way that we elect officials is that if they we think they're doing a not good job, then we're going to throw them out. And, and that's how we, you know, have a representative democracy. And, and the assumption is that being parts of these groups can help guide your decision making process, because it's really difficult to be an informed citizen and hold voters accountable or to hold elected officials accountable. And therefore, by including, by being parts of groups, you don't necessarily need to know the details of everything that the elected official has done. You can focus on, is that person good for my group? But if the group, if the politics and the religious group are closely, so closely intertwined that they can't be disentangled, it's going to become very tricky for, say, a religious group to hold a political official accountable. You could make the argument that that's sort of going on with evangelicals with Donald Trump today, right? And so I think that that's 
problematic because the foundation of our democracy is built on our ability to decide whether elected officials are doing a good or bad job, even though that is a very difficult decision to do cognitively, and that it's being parts of these groups where you can look for cues, you can look to leadership to provide guidance, you can talk to others in your group who you would assume share similar values and outlooks as a way to guide that decision making in politics. But that's that relationship is becoming much more muddled if the two are one and if, if your politics and your religion are, are so closely intertwined. I, I know we're just about uh, at the end of our conversation. Last minute, is, is there a solution to this? Oh. <laughs> That's cruel. <laughs> we're going to end on such a sad note, but I mean, I'm sure there is. I, I have yet to think of, of one. You know, I do. I think, yeah, no, no. <laughs> It's a hard one. Uh, I did another episode very recently, recorded another episode very recently with uh, Regina Rini, who's a philosopher mm-hmm. who's interested in social media. And if it's any consolation, uh, that conversation also ended on a very... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, roughly, she was saying, yeah, probably by, you know, if not the next election cycle, certainly the one following it, um, <laughs> you know, our technological abilities to create deep fakes, that is videos that appear to be of, you know, people, uh, celebrities and politicians saying things that in fact, they never said, like, mm-hmm. it's going to be so advanced that we're just never, you know, people, you know, Nixon today, Nixon would never have had to resign because he could have just claimed that the tape was, you know, was faked. Absolutely. Ouch. Um, well, uh, before we get too uh, gloomy, uh, uh, folks listening, I'm recording this on a Friday afternoon, so uh, bear, <laughs> give me a break. Uh, so um, I want to thank you for your time today, Michelle. It's been really great to talk to you about these pleasure. issues. And uh, while I'm at it, uh, let's thank the listeners. Thank you, uh, listener, for tuning in to the Why We Argue podcast. I will uh, remind you that the podcast is produced by the University of Connecticut's Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project with generous support from the John Templeton Foundation. If you are so inclined, you can follow the project on social media, that is on Twitter and Facebook, uh, at Public Humility. That is one word, Public Humility. Thanks for listening and take care. Thank you.